namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Um, <clears throat> on one of the Tuesday evenings, one of the uh, people who came along told us this tale of a six-year-old child who uh, was playing a game and then suddenly said to her mother, there's no reason for being, and then went back playing. Six years old. Um, so this being, uh, she must have, I suppose, heard her parents talk about it or friends about the meaning of life and all that. And uh, it must have sort of worked on her mind. She must have understood what she was saying because how can you come out with something like that without having some inkling, some feel for what you actually mean? And the interesting thing is that, of course, she was playing. So the thing about play, isn't it, is that you do it for yourself. You don't do it for any other reason. You don't play Monopoly um, to make yourself famous. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, it's like a game is just a game. I mean, I know that we put a lot of things on games these days, like a football, you know, it's become a, an industry. But... Um, when a child plays a game, or when we ourselves play a game with a child, we're just playing a game. It doesn't have any any objective apart from just playing the game. And therefore, all your attention is in, you know, just that doing. Uh, I think the second quality is, of course, it's very joyful, isn't it? So it's a sort of a, a happy thing to do, playing a game. Playing cards. And I think... Um, as adults, we might have things like hobbies, which don't particularly have any reason beyond themselves. They're just something you like to do. They don't have um, any aim or objective beyond just that doing. And usually, uh, a person who would say that they enjoy their hobby, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't make sense to have a hobby that they didn't enjoy. <laughs> so, if you if you cook, for instance, if you, if you like cooking. Uh, you, know, you do it just for the pleasure of it, you know, and then you might share it with friends, and you might lose a few friends, but it's a joyful occasion. It's, it's something that you've enjoyed, you've enjoyed doing. See, so these uh, this little girl she's playing. She says, "There's no reason for being." So it depends, of course, what we mean by reason. So if if we mean by reason that there's some other, something outside the game, something outside we're doing. We're, we're sort of aiming at some future result, some um, end point that we're moving towards. And that puts a pressure, doesn't it? puts a pressure on what you're doing now because what you're doing now is, um, is not in itself entire and whole. It's not, the action is not completed until some future event arises. So <clears throat> these professional games, you know, these, these footballers and tennis players, sure, they play the game, 
but it's not just a game, is it? It's, there's something else. There's an ambition about it. There's the climbing up the ladder of success. There's the money. So the game itself now doesn't have that immediate sense of perfect joy that a game might have for a child. It's now got a pressure on it, hasn't it? Now, as opposed to this word being, we've got this other word becoming. Okay? And uh, the word in the Pali for that is bhava, to become. So when the Buddha uh, describes this process of becoming, he really describes it quite clearly in, in the dependent origination, which is what we'll chant tomorrow, the sequence of mental events. And somewhere, somewhere in that process of play, see, which sort of ends around about the age of seven or so, when we lose that immediate innocence of life, and thought comes in, you see, and thought launches us out into some future. We've lived long enough to, to, to imagine a future. See, a, a, how, how futuristic can a child of three be? I mean, what does, it, what does it say? What does it mean to a child of three to say that in two months' time there'll be Christmas? Yeah, they don't live that long to understand what two months is, really. It's sort of an imaginative thing. But for us, uh, having lived so long, we begin to project, don't we? We sort of know. We know where we're going. We've got an idea of time. It's all blocked out for us. So now somewhere, somewhere in that process, um, something goes wrong. Now as opposed to that, as opposed to that going wrong and living for some future event, you have the Buddha or the enlightened ones who don't do that, but they're still living in time. They know what two months is. They also have a clear idea of time. But somehow they don't suffer. Somehow they don't get this comeback which is in the process of becoming In the um, in the law of karma, when they talk about when, when when Buddhism talks about karma, it talks about two types of karma, kusala and akusala. So this translates as wholesome, unwholesome actions, uh, virtuous and unvirtuous actions, skillful and unskillful actions. That's how you can translate it. But interestingly enough, when they try to describe or when they find try to find a word for an enlightened person doing an action, they, they, they sort of use another word, kriya, which is translated in a funny way as functional, functional action. So there's something distinctive between somebody who is fully liberated and somebody who isn't. There's a... It's a sort of sharp line. It's not as though it's a progression. You either are liberated or you're not. You might be a little bit liberated, but you're not fully liberated. There's always that peculiar way of looking at things which causes some form of dissatisfaction. So what is it? What is it that goes wrong within that process which causes us to become rather than to be? 
Okay, so when the Buddha is um, deciding to teach, and uh, that comes out of just the desire to share the goodness that he's discovered, it's a natural thing, isn't it? They say in Zen, for instance, that out of wisdom, compassion arises naturally, love arises naturally. And there's some teachers in Zen that won't touch practices like loving kindness. It's sort of like it's a, it's off the path. You, you want to get to the enlightenment, to the to the awakening, and then everything else just happens naturally. So <clears throat> when the Buddha was um, awakened and this natural desire came to teach, and he thought, well, who could he teach? You know, and having having understood or kept come to know that his two teachers, those were his first first people he thought he might help, uh, were dead. He then uh, walks to find his other five companions, those who had, um, you know, called him, told him he'd gone soft and they didn't want to know him anymore because he'd had this rice pudding, if you remember. And he walks from uh, where he becomes enlightened, where he becomes awakened in Bodhgaya. He walks all the way to Sarnat in um, Varanasi. Now I've got I've got this figure of four hundred miles, but I don't think that's quite right. But it's a heck of a long way anyway. <laughs> and he, uh, it's five hours on the train. Yeah, it's five hours on the train. I remember that. So it's a quite a long way. So he, he's off. He's, he's you know, and he's and he has to ask. It's not as though people have got mobiles in those days. Go find out where they are. And uh, then he begins to teach, and um, throughout his throughout his career as a teacher, he says when somebody comes to him who doesn't accept what he's saying, like there's an occasion when this fellow called Dandapani, which means sticking hand, must have been a nickname, <laughs> comes and and asks him what he teaches, and the Buddha says um, what he says, uh, he says what he teaches, and he goes away clicking his tongue, you know, shaking his head like a lot of rubbish, you know. In fact, there's a lovely incident when he starts off on the pro- on, on the teaching to find his five companions and he comes across an ascetic who sort of sees a certain glow around him, a certain brightness, and he says, my, he says, you're, you're bright. He says, who's your teacher? And he launches into this sort of self-panegyric about him saying, you know, I am the fully enlightened one, I don't need to teach, all sort of stuff. And, and the guy sort of says, oh, right, okay. And <laughs> sort, of <laughs> sort of wanders off. And I think that was a, sort of an early lesson that, that's not what you do if you're going to teach. Um, and when people uh, don't accept his teaching, he says he's not saddened by it. He's not, um, not upset by it. And yet when people do accept his teachings, he's joyful. And when he describes the Buddha heart, when he describes how he experiences Nibbāna as this present experience... He talks about it being contented and with it happy. Contented and with it happy. And those four limitables, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, but especially the first three, which is about relationship, love, compassion and joy, um, those contain, as it were, in their various shades the way the Buddha heart actually responds to the world. And if there's and if he's on his own, if he's quiet or or an enlightened person's quiet, 
they just fall into this state of equanimity. So you get the you get the sort of sense that uh, somebody who's awakened is, you know, living very much in the present moment. Doesn't have any particular aim. He's just responding from that wisdom point to a given situation now, without any care for future result. So even when he um, goes to begin his teaching and and um, men and women approach him to join him, um, he doesn't uh, he doesn't seem to have any particular idea of where the order is going. He's just following the general customs of ascetics in those days. And it's only as things go wrong, as certain uh, um, uh, monks and nuns make mistakes or do something wrong, that he produces a rule. And in the end, by the end of his life, he's produced all these rules with a... uh, and, and and it rests on a particular platform of understanding that that's what you would call an institution, isn't it? An institution is, you know, a, a given reason, uh, some sort of platform, and then you build up a rules around it to give it some sort of, uh, for want of a better word, legal solidity. Yeah. So even say say marriage, you know, that's an institution, isn't it? Marriage just between two people. So there's a basic understanding, and then there are rules, spoken or unspoken, which maintain that particular relationship and uh, he ends up with that Um, not that he had any specific idea as to where it was going but by the end of his life he he can look back and think well yeah it's it's a what I've produced is a good what's been produced or what's happened is is good he talks about the four the four sanghas or the four assemblies monks and nuns lay women and lay men, but that sort of happened naturally. He didn't. He didn't seem to have gone out, um, particularly to establish that. It just. It just happened as he's walking around and people join him, etc., etc. So you get this the sense of spontaneity, rather than uh, you know knee jerk reactions or some sort of preconditioned idea as to where it is going so that's another quality isn't it of play it's spontaneous a child is very spontaneous all that perhaps we can talk about um, a sense of just being in the moment moving from one moment to the next responding to it with wisdom without any sense of some future success, see, success and failure, all that's out the window, without any sense of gain, riches or anything like that, without any sense of power, wanting to control. He didn't didn't particularly want to control monks and nuns. He just wanted to set up a situation where eventually all they could do was meditate and study the Dharma. That's that's the two duties that he put to, to the monks. And, you know, he set up certain institutions for lay people. 
by taking refuge the five precepts and general guidelines. So there's no there's no sense of him want uh, him wanting to be rich, to be powerful, to be successful, in any sense. He's not driven by some future uh, aim. And he's not he's not he's not worried about being famous. There's no there's no hint in the scriptures that he gets upset if people don't don't um, recognize him. In fact there's a point there where a monk or somebody enters into a small congregation of monks and they and they ask, Well which one is, is the Bhagava? So he hasn't got a special hat on or a, you know three stripes on his shoulders, something isn't <laughs> like he's just an ordinary person. Just looks like he doesn't doesn't try to lift himself above others. All these, all these sort of um, qualities are manifesting a relationship. That's what they're doing. They're manifesting a relationship with uh, what happens, a relationship with time, a relationship with their life. And the question of what am I supposed to be doing or where am I supposed to be going or why I'm here. Why am I here? Who am I? See, all those questions have disappeared. There is just this moment, this relationship, and this response coming from the point of wisdom. In that moment, there's that complete openness to it. Uh, because there's nothing mm, negative within the person, something that has to be hidden or repressed, you know, some little dislike or guilt or whatever, usual gamut of human misery. Because there's nothing that there, there's that ability just to be completely open to the situation. And whatever the situation presents, there's just coming out from the, from the heart of wisdom. Uh, when it comes to, say, certain incidents, like um, the woman who comes crazed with grief because she's lost the child's uh, dead. And she, she's, she's got this idea that uh, these ascetics are magic, uh, you know, have some magic, some mystical powers. And in her grief-stricken situation, uh, the Buddha is able to say, you know, he's able to realize that, well, to give her the straight teaching, he's just going to send her off berserk. And he gives her a little trick, you know, to come to realize the, um, the way life is. So he sends it off, doesn't he, to find a mustard seed. So mustard seeds are, a, you know, a million a penny. But he says, you must get it from a house where there's not been any death. So off she goes, you know, desperate, knocking on doors. Have you got a mustard seed? Well, of course. Anybody died? Of course. <laughs> and by the, end of, by the end of a certain sequence of houses, there comes this dawning, dawning, you see, that, well, death is, is part of life. It just happens. That's the way it is. So she comes back, you know, more balanced of mind. And then she's open to the teaching. And as all these stories go, becomes, um, enters the order and becomes uh, fully awakened. See? 
So he's able to to respond easily to people because there's nothing. He's not coming from a fixed place, a fixed point, uh, a presumption, um, a view, an opinion. See. This idea of um, being totally receptive means that you've got to come from the ability to receive different perspectives and bring them into your general way of seeing things. A perspective suggests that you're not holding on to it. You, you recognize that there are other perspectives, that you're prepared to um, have your perspective widened or broadened or somehow changed because you hear other people's views, their, their perspective. But the word opinion gives us the idea that, well, you know, this is right and everybody else is wrong. And that immediately closes you off, immediately shuts you off. It makes a relationship difficult. You're immediately in contradiction with somebody else who has a different opinion. So when somebody comes to the Buddha and asks him uh, um, to give a teaching, he never he never goes into his teaching. He always says, well, "What do you think?" And then the and the person says, "What what they think?" And then he undermines their position. Bit <laughs> 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 of a trick, really, I suppose. And then when they're completely flawed and and completely <laughs> lost, he says, "Well, now this is the truth," and off he goes. <laughs> but he's um, he's not. He doesn't seem to have been that sort of person who said, well, look, you know, if you come to me, this is what it is, you know. If you don't accept it, you know, go away. He's prepared to try and um, understand where that person's coming from and in so doing to show that maybe they haven't got it quite right. See, And then, then there's an openness to the Dharma, that's how it says. Then there's, there's a subtleness, there's a malleability in that person's mind and that's when he offers the Dharma. So we can see that, uh, you know, just in general, all these qualities are about, are about being very present, yeah? Like a child is with play. There's nothing, nothing being deposited onto this present moment, either by way of some past opinion, some opinion, some, some, uh, some view that we've held onto from the past and that we must see this present moment through. There's no launching of this present moment into some future successful result. So it remains, it remains just entire and whole in itself. And you're sort of moving through time in these little blocks. But you're not coming from nowhere. That's the point. He's not, the Buddha's not coming from a blank sheet. He's coming from a specific way of relating to the world, which brings with it a specific understanding So now as opposed to that, you've got this becoming, which is generally speaking what we do. This becoming. What's the core of the becoming? See, how does all this, how do these opinions and views and futures and fame and riches and, uh, and power, what, you know, from, from where do they spring? Around what do they coagulate? See? What are they an expression of? 
So this is what the Buddha refers to as the self. And the self isn't a thing. It's not. A, it's not. You can point to it or pick it up or, or, or say what it is. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. So it's a mistake that uh, we make, which is completely understandable. It's not as though it's a culpable mistake. We're not. We're not supposed to be all beating ourselves around the head because we made this mistake, because we we come from a point of not knowing. Um, there's a, a film called uh, Zenoir and there's a nice little passage in that where the master is asked by this um, person what happens when you die and he says don't know and then he says why don't you know he says, I'm not dead yet he's <laughs> like it's like you know it's a uh, it's creating, it's, it's sort of recognising that um, what we've done is we've, we've made a presumption, we've, we've fallen into some sort of what the, Buddha, what the Buddha called a delusion. And a delusion, by definition, is something that you don't know you're deluded about, or else you wouldn't be deluded. <laughs> so there we are, there we are, this little uh, bundle of flesh and bones... And what do we know? What do we know? And then society comes at us with definitions, gives us a name. Uh, parents tells us this and tells us that. We pick up the history. We, we get a language. Everything's sort of dumped on us, you know. So is any is it any uh, wonder that we should end up thinking, well, this is what I am, you know? And that, uh, this is what I am, you see. I am. I am English. I am a teacher. I am. See, I am. This am business. This, this I with, 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 its, with, its, with its definition, with its being, you might say. With its sense of self in all those definitions that we have about who we are and what we are. So once we've cornered ourselves, once we've, once we've gathered all these definitions about ourselves, you can see how it becomes an imprisonment. And you get these wonderful phrases, you get these wonderful um, statements like the one I love is, you know, if I did that, that wouldn't be me. <laughs> if, if I thought that, that wouldn't be me. And it's a sort of a, you can feel the sort of clampness of that. You know, it's like a, it's like something that's, are so tight, you know, about who I am. Now this who I am uh, produces a doing. You, you walk into life with who I am and you start doing something. So I mean, very simply, if, if you say, I am a teacher, then, then you have to teach. But this teaching now isn't like the Buddha's teaching, where he's just in relationship. It falls back on the definition. It falls back on who I am. So if I lose my job, who am I? Then I get the depression. I mean, losing your job is bad enough, uh, you know, to, to lose to lose the the, uh, the income. I mean, that's bad enough. But then to lose a definition of yourself, 
Well, that's an identity crisis. You might go around saying, well, I was a teacher, which is a bit, <laughs> a bit of a downer. But, but that, that business of identity uh, creates a whole psychology of what, 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 the Buddha, what uh, um, we mean by an attachment. Now, of course, it goes deeper than that because at the deepest level, um, we think we're humans. Right? I am a human being. That's a pretty general statement most people on earth would agree with. I am a human being. But when you say, I am a human being, what, what do you mean? Are you the body? If you say, well, I am the body, I am this body, how long are you this body for? When you talk about this body... I think every, I don't know, I read it somewhere, but every atom is exchanged in your body, something like every, every few days or something. It's quite, quite remarkable how quickly the body is changing. The cornea on your eye changes every week. I know that for sure because the optician told me, and I believe the optician. <laughs> I mean, if you look at, if you go into the biology of certain parts of your body, you'll be quite amazed how they're not actually in unison. Bits are falling off without you knowing. Bits take time to fall off. I mean, a bone, I think, takes about three months to renew itself. So even now, you walked into that door with this body, but it isn't this body anymore. It's moved on, it's, it's changed, it's, you know. So this idea of a self... It has something static about it. It has something solid. This is what I am. But when we investigate the body, uh, we find well, I, this amness can't be can't be static. And if it's moving, if it's changing, then which am I? Am I the body that I was born with, or this body, or the future body? So the sense of I begins to corrupt. It begins to fall apart. But if I say I am the body, you can imagine. Well, we know, don't we? We know the suffering of I am the body. It comes out when, uh, when you fall sick, when uh, uh, somebody close to you dies. Then you know, oh, well, if that body went that way, probably mine <laughs> will follow in the same way. And we all dread the moment when the doctor will tell you you've got six weeks to go. That's no, it's not a laughing matter, is it? So this sense of self, this, with this identity with the body, uh, manifests when the body moves into danger. And that fear that we have, that real fear of death, of dying, of severe illness, of being crippled, of losing our minds, Alzheimer's, all that fear is the measure of that delusion. See, when the Buddha died, he... Uh, he was in pain. He had gastroenteritis or some sort. There would have been in pain. But by uh, how it's come down to us is, he's, he's just lying on his side. You know? And it, there's even that still, that, that uh, desire to make sure that he said everything. He asked, you know, are there any more questions? And when there are no more questions, he says, well, all compounded things arise and pass away. Work diligently for your liberation. And off he goes.
Okay. What will be our last words? Why me? <laughs> what will be our last thoughts? Will they be as equanimous as that? As, as easy? Will we, as, will we let go as easy as that? So the reason we can't let go as easy as that is because it's what I think I am. I'm losing a bit of me. If you think about your emotional life, that's changed, hasn't it? That's constantly changing, probably faster than the body's changing. All these intentions we make, all these... Um, the way that we create this inner life within ourselves, all the depressions and anxieties, etc. And the happinesses, the loves and all those, the joys of life. Yeah, they seem to come and go, don't they? they? seem to come and go. And even more fleeting is thought. So which thought are you? And would you want to go back to being a three-year-old with a three-year-old's thoughts? So when we begin to investigate this, this self, this I am, this I am, you see, and you, and you, you finish it off, I am, I think therefore I am, I feel therefore I am, I walk around therefore I am, you know, I brush my teeth therefore I am. If, when, you, when, you, when you investigate that as, a, as something solid, entire, whole unto itself, it begins to crumble, doesn't it? It begins to crumble. But we find that when we're in that state, what it makes us do is to hold on to the present moment tightly or make sure this present moment has some sort of sense to this ongoing feeling of self and it creates this future. You've got to be going somewhere. What's the point of, of just being here if you're not going somewhere? <laughs> What's the point of meditating if you're not going to get some results? That's a hard one, isn't it? Mm. You've all come here for some result. Very disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) And this self, this this becoming, this, this process of being me all the time, me all the time, is driven by this desire to be happy. That's what we want, isn't it? Just be happy for heaven's sake. I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to be rich, I, don't want to be bad, I just want to be happy. So being driven by this want to be happy, I've got to manipulate, I've got to actually struggle against the way things are to make me happy because my happiness is defined by what's made me happy in the past. If crumpets and cocoa have made me happy on Thursday, then next Thursday I've got to have crumpets and cocoa. I won't be happy. Simple as that. So I begin to try and manipulate the future, you see. Now when we say the future, that's not some abstract idea. That means people. I've got to manipulate you to make me happy. If you get in my way, I've got to manipulate you. I've got to play around with you. If, if an object gets in my way, I kick it out. I burn it. Get rid of it. I mean, we have these ideologies, don't we? When, when a group of people take on a similar idea, you get these vast ideologies. Christianity, communism, capitalism. 
And you can see what it does. Right? Destroys people, because they all have to fit into this, this future idea, this, this, this thing that we've, that's created only in, in somebody's head. And if you don't fit in, well, you get shot. So it has um, our way, this self has a way of, of collecting other selves to support uh, the idea this self has. And then, you have a, and then you have a movement. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's what happens to religions, isn't it? You know, from the first inspiration, it becomes uh, locked into a series of beliefs and attitudes and then it becomes a movement, you know. And it loses that original, origi that original spontaneity. And every so often a teacher comes along and sort of reforms it and you get that burst of energy again. But often it'll just solidify into rich rites and rituals, customs, uh, rules and regulations. You know? I mean, Jesus, you know, with, with, the, with the Jewish tradition, um, Sabbath was not made for... Uh, Sabbath, what is it? Man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. And that's what he's saying. These rules and regulations are not, not there to bind us. So all these, all these problems that we come across, all these conflicts, all the, all the emotional turmoil, all of that, is all back, it all you know, falls back on this I am. Now, that's the you know, crucial importance of Vipassana meditation. Or these other forms, in other forms of Buddhism, like uh, you know, Zen, um, Zazen, or uh, Dzogchen. It's all about getting down to that root level of the problem. Now, uh, in, the, in this, you know, I, I often quote every evening, I quote this business of those who are mindful are in the presence of Nibbana, in the vicinity of Nibbana. So what do we mean by that? Well, when you sit still, and so you've steadied the body and stilled the body, and you've found this observation post within yourself, and you've become an observer within yourself, a feeler, an experiencer, and you're looking into the so-called self, this body, this psychophysical complex organism, you see, that's a very... That's a very different position from I am the body, isn't it? Because you're saying, there's the body. I mean, when, when somebody has a headache, they say, I have a headache, I am ill. But here, suddenly, from this position, yeah, you're looking at the knee, you're feeling the knee, and you're saying, well, there's pain. There's somehow a separation, there's a gap has appeared between this knowing and what it knows. And that gap is a loss of self. It's a, it's a loss of a relationship. It's no longer my knee, my pain. There's, it is, there's pain. When you have an emotion come up, you know, you, depression comes up, or joy, or some sort of excitement, or, or this dullness and lethargy. See, normally you'd say, I am tired. And that's good enough reason to go to bed. I am depressed, and that's good enough reason to go to bed. <laughs> lots, lots of amazing good reasons for going to bed. But here you can't. Can't go to bed. No, I'd be very upset. <laughs> you have to say, oh, there's dullness. See, there's dullness in the head. It feels like porridge. 
And there's tiredness in the body, you see. But somehow this there is has made whatever knows, that which knows, separate itself. It's formed a new relationship with it. It's not me, it's not mine. There is this. It's just like um, a property that you've sold or a car that you used to have, that you've sold. You have a very different relationship to it, don't you? It's not yours anymore, it's somebody else's. You know, The fact that all the pipes burst, well, you're very compassionate, but it's not your problem anymore, is it? <laughs> but if it's your house, your car, it's very upsetting if things go wrong. So can you, can you see that if we can develop a relationship with the body where this is the body, not me, not mine, when things go wrong, why should fear arise? It's not me, it's not mine. Why should I get depressed? It's not me, it's not mine. Emotions, you see, we find out that they're just these volitional conditionings. That's a sort of translation of the word sankara. They're just conditionings. A mental conditioning. Uh, what is it? What is an emotion? What is it before you, before you give it a name? So here you are. You're you're, you're meditating, and and this this feeling comes up. And you can see it's not a physical feeling like pain or pleasure. It's, it's a mental feeling. It's a more of a subtle, a subtle sort of energy. And as you look into it, you you say, oh, that's that feels like depression, or feels like anxiety. Or it feels like joy, feels like excitement. But to do that, you must have separated yourself. You know, to investigate something, you've got to be outside it. If you want to, if you want to look at cells, you've got to find an instrument. And you're looking at it. If you want to look up in the sky, you've got to get an instrument. And you've got to look at it. Yeah, you can't be the star. You can't get lost in some sort of romantic emotion. You want to study the stars. So here, in order to find out what an emotion is, we've had to separate from it. And that separation, that distinction, is a loss of self because you're not saying, I am depressed. You're saying, there is depression. You're not saying, I am excited. There's excitement. And we can take this as far as thoughts and, uh, and, uh, and images. When you get into a really good, quiet state... You can see a thought coming. You see an image beginning to grow. You can actually sometimes a thought passes through your mind like a neon light. And when you have those sorts of experiences, you know. Well, I, I didn't think that. <laughs> it just arose and passed away. So very slowly, uh, through the practice of vipassana, we are distinguishing. We're trying to find. We're, we're finding out that well, this is this is not what I am. This is not me, not mine. And that process, of course, leads us backwards. Leads us. This is the unfortunate thing. You don't know what you. You don't know where you're going. See, leads us backwards to the knowledge of who I am. That's one of the. Uh, that's the koan. That's the the big question of as I understand it anyway, of Korean Zen. It's just that. Who am I? And it's the moment after you've asked the question which is, which is the potential moment. After that, the mind rushes in to tell you who you are and what you are. But just to hang on in there, who am I? And that moment of not knowing. 
it has all the potential of, of breaking that essential delusion that hangs around the word I. So, from the, uh, from the Buddha's teaching, this becoming, this constant becoming me, this arising out of one moment into the next, is the fundamental problem that uh, is creating this wrong relationship with the world. And it puts us into a conflict with it. Whether it's a subtle conflict or a major conflict, it doesn't matter. It's always a conflict because we're always trying to manipulate things to fit in with this sense of me. Now when that goes, there's a whole new, new relationship. Now there is no future. There's no past. You're not coming from a fixed position. You're not going to a fixed position. Your, 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 um, uh, our ability will be to be completely receptive. You know, without any, without any sieve, without any, without any separation of what we don't want, what we don't like. And in that, there's that very open communication. And in that open, immediate communication, whether it be with a person. Or, or with an animal, or with just nature, with a tree, just an openness to a tree, to a leaf. Yeah, there's that sense of just being here in, in a very total way, for no other reason than just to be here. And with it there arises just a natural joy, is what the Buddha says, just a natural joy. That contentment is, the, is that being being with the moment, not wanting anything more than what the, moment's be, the moment is giving us. See? And the happiness comes out of the response to that moment. Contentment and happiness. So that's where we're going. And we should be happier. We should. <laughs> that's what we mean by hope as opposed to expectation. You know, hope is the knowledge, that inner, f inner knowledge, that inner feeling, that um, intuitive understanding that uh, there's an end to suffering. There's an end to that wrong sort of relationship. And what the Vipassana practice is doing is making us see that, yeah, there's a possibility of an end to this. But it doesn't make it any easier. But it does lift the practice a bit to know that there is an end to suffering. Uh, no. Um, see, becoming has to have uh, this, this objective Becoming has to have this expectancy, which is slightly different. Yeah. Making a distinction between hope and expectation. Right? Hope is a, um, a fundamental position to life, that life is good. It has meaning. It has, it has, um, there, is, there is a reason for suffering. And the reason for suffering is this wrong relationship. 
And that once the wrong relationship is corrected, happiness, perfect peace, all that arises. Expectation would want to put a date on it. Expectation would want to uh, achieve it. But what we realize in the meditation is that it's not achievable by you. That's another thing that you recognize, isn't it? That it happens. Once you find yourself in that position, the heart begins to purify itself. You don't have to do anything. It's like the body heals itself. You can't have a spiritual insight. You can't say, well, I'm going to sit down now and I'm going to have a spiritual insight. <laughs> you can't do it. You can have an intellectual insight. You can think about something. You have an aesthetic insight. You can set yourself a task to understand something aesthetically or that, or that way. But you can't make yourself have an insight. In fact, you might argue that when it comes to certain problems, even insights of that nature um, you know, are beyond the self. You know, scientists will, will, um, will talk about how the answer just came. They'll go asleep. They'll sleep on an answer, you know, and then they wake up with it. You know, so who thought that one out? You see? So how do we, you know, how do we bring ourselves, how do we begin to train ourselves in daily life to, to get this sense of being rather than becoming? Um, and the trick there is to really get your intentions right. So when you're eating, you're just eating to nourish the body. You're not asking for it to make you happy. As simple as that. If you're asking for it to make you happy, then you've formed a different relationship with food. But if the food is there just as medicine for the body, what's the problem? The fact that it tastes nice is a plus. It's a little gift. When you want to help somebody, uh, make sure that your intention is right, that you're just doing it for that person. You're just doing it out of uh, goodness of heart. That there's no um, uh, subliminal reasons for doing it, you know. That you, that you want your kitchen decorated too and that you expect them to come along and do it. Things like that. When you do, you know, whatever job you do um, to get it right, that you're doing it as a service, of course there's pay, you know. And of course there's the, hopefully, the enjoyment of the job. But those are to be seen as merit. You know, we have this idea in Buddhism of merit. You get merit. You get sort of um, you get something added on because of your of your good heart. So the merit of doing your job is you get a, a wage and you get um, and you get certain joy out of it. But that's not why you're doing it. See, the reason we should be doing work is out of a service. You're doing it for the benefit of the other. Same, same if you were... Amb it, 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 doesn't put, it doesn't get rid of the idea of ambition. You don't have to not be ambitious because you've decided to live the spiritual life. But your attitude is, well, these are the talents I've got and I can see that a job... I could do that job, so I'll, I'll offer these talents as a service. So if, if you find that somebody else got the job, you know, there's not that... <laughs> there's not a disappointment... Because it was an offering. It's like, you know, you give a present. I mean, if you give a present and the person says, well, it's all right, no, I don't want it. You shouldn't feel bad about it, should you? You only feel bad about it because there's some ego, there's some self involved in the giving of the present. It's like, it's like they've not accepted you. Like, yeah, you've been rejected. And so you feel dejected. 
So in, in terms of our meditation, we're trying to uh, make this distinction as to, as to what is me and what is not me. And mainly, the, the technique is to see not me, not me, not mine, not me, not mine. And then when we go out into daily life to see, to be aware of any selfish, any self-centered intention. Now you've got to be careful here. There's a difference between selfishness and self-regard, self-care. I mean, sometimes you've got to look after yourself. But in terms of what you're doing, you're doing it with the right attitude for the benefit of the other. So there are three positions. You do things for your own benefit, you do things for the benefit of the other, and you do things both for your own benefit and the benefit of the other. That's how the Buddha sort of states it. And then you see the result, you see. Not the result out there, because you never know what, what happens when you do something out there, you know. But you see the result inside. Has it caused attachment? Has it caused disappointment? See, if anything negative comes up from an action, then you know there's, there's something crept in there. So let's presume that that little girl who said there's no reason for being is already there. She might, she, might have, <laughs> she might be fully and completely liberated. You never know. So, I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.